You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. It's taken 10 years, but I think I finally figured out what Mockingbird does. You know, Kate mentioned not knowing what to say to people at parties, and it's not like I know either. I'm like just the, I'm just the guy that works here. Um, but I finally figured it out, and I'm going to tell you this morning. But before I do, I want, to, um, I want to do what it is we do, and then I'll tell you what I'm doing. Most of you know, but uh, this is why I'm calling it Another Decade Ends. Not because we have had a decade before this, but I'm playing on the title of our weekly column. Uh, I've realized that one of the things I enjoy most uh, is, that it is synthesizing. Um, synthesizing different uh, sources. It's a lot of fun. It's like fitting puzzles together. It's not, it's not everyone's idea of fun, but I like doing it. And so I'm going to synthesize a few things for you this morning, or at least try. Uh, if this were a weekend column, there are a few important beats I'd want to hit, and I'm going to start with the least important and work my way up to the most important. The least important is something called pop culture. Uh, people say, uh, I'm always asked to comment on my culture and Christianity and stuff like that. I could care less. Like, I, I, don't, I like pop culture, but I'm not, I'm not conceptualized. That's not why we got into this, was to talk about The Simpsons, you know. Um, and The Simpsons are great. Or, you know, the Beach Boys. I had I'd briefly considered making this talk all about Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> and I thought, there's just not enough there, unfortunately. I, it, it just, I, no, I have a love affair with Lindsey Buckingham's sound, and I, like, uh, I really like Stevie Nicks' lyrics. And you know, who, That's about as much as I can say. Um, I didn't mean to insult them. They've got a new record coming out next week. In June, excuse me. But... Gotta hit the pop culture beat because that's what the people want. And I'll hit it by telling you about this movie I saw the other day after my mother-in-law recommended it to me. Uh, The Edge of Seventeen. Most incredible movie. Really good movie about teenagers that's clearly not made for teenagers. And tells some truth. It was directed by a woman named Kelly Freeman Craig. And it tells the story of young Nadine, who's on the edge of 17, who has utter contempt for the society she has found herself in at school. And it opens with a voiceover in which she explains that there are two types of people in the world. Those who radiate confidence and succeed without any effort, and those who want that first group to die in a fire. But it's, that's, what the, the, that's what the movie's about. It's, it's about, uh, she knows that everyone wants to be important in life, and she's stuck between these two, this yin and yang, and that to invest too much into that ideal is to put yourself on a hamster wheel uh, and to realize there's always some, someone more important than you. What we talk about is the injunction to be enough to be a certain person that you feel so acutely in high school. And this relates to a, a lesson that the uh, writer-director, Kelly Freeman, Craig, uh, wanted to convey. She said, part of what I was exploring and what inspired me was this idea that I think a lot of us carry around um, that everybody has life figured out except you. It's particularly loud in your life at that age, adolescence. It's really easy to believe it. 
it's easy to romanticize other people's lives and feel worse about your own. And the key line in the whole movie is when Kira Sedgwick cries out the mother who's just kind of made a mess of her life, but is trying hard. She said, I realize um, everyone is miserable, uh, just like me. They're just better at hiding it. It's a very powerful moment. And it's not to say we're condemned to misery, but that life is actually, a lot of life is just posing. And so I wanted to show you that clip, actually, but I couldn't find it, so I'm going to show you a clip from uh, Rogue One. Let's watch it. What now? I don't know. Must be another pickup. I thought we had everybody. Oh, Holly! Leanna Holly! Huh? I'm gonna get out of here. Hey! Move at me! Congratulations. You are being rescued. Please do not resist. If Robert Capon had written a Star Wars, that's what would it be like. Isn't that a great allegory for the Christian life? See, a lot of times when I'm working on one of these weekend posts, I can't actually find the thing I want, so I, you know, I punt to something else. And so I just did that, and it's amazing. It's a freebie. You can use it. Uh, she gets rescued, and all she, the first thing is she does is to fight her captures, her, her, her rescuers and until she gets thrown on the ground and sold congratulations. But the rescuer is not dissuaded by her resistance, uh, not even in the slightest. The next thing I'd want to include, the next beat I'd want to hit, partly for egotistical reasons to show you that I'm reading things, is something about the social sciences that illuminates human fallibility. You know we like to do this. I feel like uh, the, the great one that happened recently, and those in, from Charlottesville will know this one, the, um, Bridget Schulte reported in uh, the New York uh, Magazine that even work-life balance experts are awful at balancing work and life. <laughs> in all my years working in this field, I've never met anyone who's not struggling themselves, said Ken Matos, Vice President of Research at Life Meets Work, a work workforce strategy consulting firm. There's been way too many moments when I've been t talking to leaders in the work-life field who work crazy hours in order to get other people to take time off. <laughs> but then, you know, you come back to some of the, I, I was perusing some of the ones we've posted over the years, and you really, the one you really want to post, the one I really want to highlight this morning, is that one that came out of Finland in 2015. The new study, this is not The Onion, a new study confirms that there are way too many studies. Scientists formulated complex equations and concluded that with the new media age comes more material, and with more material comes a decline in our attention towards the important scientific studies. The authors of the study found that the decay in scholars' attention towards influential studies in their field is speeding up. Okay. Um, 
And, you know, one of the great bells we ring over and over again, everyone was sort of sick of talking about it, but I can't, I have to hit on it in the weekender, in the, in the, in the another decade ends, where I'd be dishonest, but would be to highlight another massive study out of the University of San Diego about self-comparison effect. What does that mean? It means the more hours Facebook users log on the social network, the more their sense of well-being and happiness declined according to researchers. Facebook users who spent a very large amount of time on the social network showed meaningful decreases in physical and mental health compared to the average. One of the themes of, at Mockingbird that I think is most pressing, especially for anyone who's interested in addressing people where they live and, and talking about um, life and, and uh, grace, is to address the smartphone issue um, that has become such an uh, addiction and it's such a mediated experience of life. And it's brought a lot of wonderful things. It's, without it, we wouldn't have Mockingbird. But we, it's something we'll continue to talk about. It's because I struggle with it, too. One of the first things I thought about my sabbatical, taking email off my phone, taking the internet off the phone, just making it into an iPod so I can listen to Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> I'm willing to do without the internet, but not Christine McVie. And in fact, last week, Alan Jacobs, who I think is just one of the greatest thinkers out there, he was reflecting on John Calvin's famous comment about the heart being a forge for idols. Do you hear get thrown around? And he, he, he called the smartphone the universal idol fabricating device. And he said instead of, instead of to paraphrase him, he says instead of uh, we get one idol in our life and it's our career and that, that's what we're worshiping or it's our children and we, we just sort of, it's like a forge and you make one thing and you kind of, anything but worship God, you know. And um, he said what we have with these devices is just a steady stream of, 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 of less captivating idols. But it doesn't matter how that they're not captivating because there's another one coming. Another email on its way. There'll be another tweet, another uh, message to affirm or uh, reject you. Now, but once we got there in the weekender, I'd have to hit the humor right? Too dark. You're probably reading it on a smartphone, right? So I have to make you laugh. Um, and I think uh, I found the perfect clip, which is sort of apropos of nothing except for the incredible talk that Sarah uh, gave yesterday and that Simeon uh, also reinforced. So Lena, let's play this and prepare to laugh. Isn't that funny? <laughs> the key to a great relationship is control. Control is the thread that keeps your relationship together. And we found that being passive aggressive is the best way to control your partner. I thought we could do something together today. Maybe go to the beach? Not interested. Or we could stay in and watch a movie if the beach doesn't appeal to you. When Amber won't talk to me, she really helps me learn that I did something wrong. Because she won't tell me what I did that was wrong, deep down I just assume that I'm simply wrong for who I am at the core of my being. When I give JP the cold shoulder, it's encouragement for him to be a better person. Because I don't really like who he is. Oh, thank you for cleaning the kitchen for once. JP shares so much gratitude with me through his snarky comments. 
And at the same time, he shames me a lot. He is so good at directly communicating his thoughts with me with misdirected shame. She deserves it. I decided I want to write a book. I'm so excited. You've never written anything before. So you're not going to get picked up by a publisher. JP's criticisms of my ambitions reminds me that I'm not enough of a person to fulfill my own hopes and dreams. Yeah, Amber's dreams have no place in our relationship because they threaten my ability to control her. Oh, I feel so loved when you control me. Mm -hmm. Couples who control each other stay together. I've made it to the gym three times this week. That's really good. I didn't think you'd be able to get yourself to go at all. I use a compliment to slightly disguise my harsh criticism of Amber. And I have lots of it because I don't have any respect for her. And I don't have any respect for myself either. That's why I'm with JP. We're a perfect match. Oh, I talked to Drew this morning. He said he and Jillian are going to the Bahamas for a week. Well, maybe if you made more money, we could go on a trip like that. I have a lot of expectations that JP will never be able to meet. And he deserves the opportunity to feel hurt about not living up to my impossible standards. Amber feels empty inside because of her daddy issues from childhood. And I'd much rather have her hurt me rather than feeling her own hurt. And I think that by putting up with her emotional abuse, eventually I'll be able to rescue her. You're my knight in shining armor. Okay. It's rare that you can say you're going to laugh and people actually laugh, but that's pretty funny, right? And it, it relates exactly to what we were talking about yesterday. You know, um, Auden has that great quote about Christian comedy, and this is why I would say that humor is the, number, is the number two most important thing that we're trying to do. I thought maybe it should be number four. It should come before pop culture, certainly before social science or after social science. But I think it's the second most important thing that actually happens uh, if we're being uh, true to our calling. Auden said that Christian comedy is based upon the belief that all men are sinners, that no one, therefore, whatever his rank or talents, can claim immunity from the comic exposure. And indeed, the more virtuous a man is, the more he realizes he deserves to be exposed. In other words, we're pretty darn virtuous. I'm kidding. The really reason why humor is so important, I think, is that like, I think it was Pete Holmes that said, laughter is a reflex. It's not a choice. And you are in touch with the truth whenever you're laughing. It's not, you have what you should laugh at and what should be funny and what actually is funny, what's acceptable humor and what's not. But there's something, you're in touch with the truth about yourself, about the world when you're laughing. But now that I've gotten you to go, uh, you to laugh, I figured I'd go for the jugular and get to the thing I really wanted to say and for which a lot of the other stuff is simply window dressing. It's an article I read a couple weeks ago that encapsulates much of our work. And if you'll stick with me, I think it's, it actually gets to what Mockingbird is trying to do. It comes from Wilfred McClay, who's a history professor at the University of Oklahoma. Uh, go Sooners. All right, I knew you were here. Um, called The Strange Persistence of, of Guilt. And what he notices up front is that we're, we who live in the West are, live in the midst of a paradox in which the idea of Nietzsche and a lot of other people that forecast modern society would be that once we threw off these oppressive religious uh, imperatives, that we would enter an age of new innocence and in which anything was possible and the human project would flourish. 
and especially that guilt would no longer be a problem. And yet, we live in a culture, and we live in a, it's not out there, it's in here too, in which guilt persists, in fact, has been amplified. In fact, guilt is such a driving factor that we almost can't talk about it directly. It is metastasized, as he says. We thought it would go away, but it's come back stronger than ever. Perhaps the most powerful and pervasive element in our society. Well, what do I mean? I mean that thanks to our smartphones, thanks to science and technology, we now have the, at least the illusion of greater agency in the world. We, 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 we know, we can see the child in the Sudan who needs our help, but we can not only see that person in a bunch of pictures of their life, we could actually get there, given our technology. We could actually do something about it. And so the greater the realm of possible responsibility you have, possible agency you have, the greater the responsibility you theoretically have, and therefore the, the greater the guilt when you sit at home and just click through another image or read Mockingbird. <laughs> We like to speak, as he writes, romantically of the interconnectedness of all things, failing to recognize that the same principle means that there is almost nothing for which we cannot be in some way held responsible. You can find out how much this person gave to charity or this person gave to church. You can find out how big your carbon footprint is. And there is no end to the optimization, the life-hacking uh, pathology. And it, because there's no end, there's no end to the guilt, which is just ballooning out of control. To say nothing about our research into the past and into the systems of oppression that we're all part and parcel of, which, you know, it's just every headline is about that. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list for which you and I can take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream, for the demands on an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. I'll say that again. The demands on an active conscience, given the amount of information we have at our disposal, is as endless as the active imagination's ability to conjure those, uh, those demands. I mean, you think about the past is not, is not buried at all. It's not even, not even past in the Faulkner. It's, uh, it's become more alive with moral contestation, as Maclay writes. Sim talked about how we've tried to deal with this burden of guilt, which is really the burden of sin. He talked about how we've demoralized it and made it into a health issue. Feelings of guilt hold me back from being all that I could be and medicalized it which in a lot of cases is great, and we're certainly all in favor of people feeling better. But it does not, it is not enough to deal with the burden of guilt, which is always looking for an opportunity to unload. Always. Uh, it's impossible to exaggerate. What did, um, what did Eliot say? He said like uh, half the harm that's done in the world are by men who are engaged in the endless struggle to think well of themselves to offload this burden of guilt which is weighing them down. It is the powerful and inextinguishable need of human beings to feel morally justified, to feel themselves to be right with the world. <clears throat> so it's this deep irony 
in which we are coming to operate. We have the extraordinary weight of guilt and the pervasive need to find innocence through moral absolution and somehow discharge our moral burden at the exact time when we have less access to anything that can actually do it. We don't even have the language to talk about it. It's no longer available to people. So we've come up with a few things and it's getting increasingly bizarre. And I'm gonna mention only one of them and it's the one that's gotten me in most trouble on the internet, but here it goes because we have to talk about it. One of the most workable and popular ways to be at peace with oneself and to feel innocent and right with the world is to identify oneself as a certifiable victim. Or better yet, to identify oneself with victims. As a victim, and this is not to diminish actual wrongdoing and injustice and, and all sorts of abuse, but we're talking about a larger social force here. As a victim, you can project onto another person all of your guilt you can offload it. You can project that guilt onto his or her shoulders. It's a reversal in which the designated victimizer plays the role of scapegoat. Usually it's the, it's, the, it's the victim that is the scapegoat. Now we've made the victimizer into the scapegoat. Unfortunately, we're all victimizers. So when we look at college campuses, and we look at our cultural discourse, our political discourse, we look at the identity politics, uh, you know, righteousness um, Olympics that are going on all the time, um, we're not actually looking at hypocrisy or hysteria or self-righteousness. What we're seeing, and this is McClay speaking, is men and women working out their salvation in fear and trembling. That's what's at stake here. Because the deeply inscribed algorithm of sin demands some kind of atonement. I wish it weren't the case. But this spells an enormous moral and spiritual crisis, especially if the terms which have been traditionally available to us are forbidden or uh, um, cordoned off from polite society. And yet, the persistent problem of guilt does open up a new basis for reconsidering the enduring claims of Christianity. I mean, if it doesn't do that, uh, you know, that's, that's what it does. He says that such an argument would have little to do with conventional theological apologetics. Instead, it would draw from empirical realities regarding the social and psychological makeup of advanced Western societies and it would fully face the fact that without the support of religious beliefs and institutions, we have no choice but to accept that the advance of human civilization brings not happiness, but a mounting tide of unassuaged guilt, ever in search of novel and ineffective and ultimately bizarre ways to discharge itself. <clears throat> okay, so that's what Smockingbird's actually trying to do. We're compiling the sociological and psychological data the stories. We're having fun, we're laughing because it's funny, and that Christian comedy thing, there's not much to really lose here. Um, but that's what's really uh, going on, and it took this guy articulating it to make me realize that's actually what we've been doing, to varying degrees of success. But what's our response to this? 
what was my response to this article? I, my friend Ryan Shaw over there, uh, he, he said, you read articles like this, and the same thing for me, is, and you all of a sudden feel vindicated. Well, if only these terrible secularists knew what I know as a Christian. How can I twist my knowledge of self-justification into a new self-justification? And then you're back to the beginning. If anything, if you're not cut to the core, you're not listening. What we find out is that we're all in this together. And that if that's true, then the approach to other people is what Nicole just outlined. They are a child of God who is suffering under an enormous burden of guilt and trying to discharge it in ways that are more than likely backfiring and causing deeper guilt. Just look at the history of reparations. I wish it were, there was a, a point where we got to enough, uh, where people could feel healed. But I'm not sure that's the way the human heart works. Of course, these are all words. They're all arguments and analyses. And it's not actually the, the ultimate thing that I'd like to be doing, or I think our contributors want to be doing. We're not pointing these things out for the sake of feeling smart or self-justified, although we are. <laughs> we are um, hoping to increase a little bit of the empathy and compassion out there, what Ryan calls the de-jerking process. This is different though. There's a difference between talking about the justification of the ungodly and actually uh, the reality that we are justified as ungodly men and women. What did Fleming say last night? That pretty much says everything and it does. But this is not a memorial to a bunch of ideas and assertions. God, Jesus Christ himself is alive and he is here with us today and he is at work in the world. And I'll tell you one story as to why I know this is true. It's a story of a confused, fearful 27-year-old who didn't know what he wanted to do with his life, but knew that uh, grace was the only thing that didn't make him feel worse. And out of self-protection and the deep-seated need to justify himself before his family and before the world, he and some other friends started an organization to talk about this stuff. And God met them in the midst of their terribly mixed motives, their hubris, their arrogance, their uh, bad sense of humor, but incredible taste in music. <laughs> it's a germ of an idea mixed with a whole lot of apprehension and a strong dose of ego. Throw in some indignation, a little anger, and a lot of rationalization, and you get a ministry called Mockingbird. And you watch as things falter 
and people get hurt and God remains faithful. And somehow you wake up one day and he has taken something that, that where there was nothing, where there shouldn't be anything if it was a matter of our own doing or ingenuity or initiative. And he's done something. Four years in, we said, where are all the ladies? Let's pray for some women. Man, he answered that one. Uh, he answered that prayer. And he'll continue to answer these prayers, I'm convinced. Because we're not just trying to talk about the message of grace. We are experiencing it in the midst of talking about it. And that is what is the great encouragement to me in the midst of uh, 10 years of this. It's what Auden, quoting Lewis, says is the key to all Protestant theology, is that of a catastrophic conversion when the convert realizes that all the initiative has been on God's side and it has been free, unbounded grace. His own puny and ridiculous efforts would be helpless to retain the joy as they would have been to achieve it in the first place. Fortunately, they need not. Bliss is not for sale. It cannot be earned. Works have no merit, though of course faith inevitably, even unconsciously, flows out into works of love at once. The convert is not saved because he does works of love. He does works of love because he is saved. It is faith alone that has saved him, faith bestowed by sheer gift. From this buoyant humility, this farewell to the self with all its good resolutions, anxiety, scruples, and motive scratchings, all Protestant doctrines originally sprang. I'm comforted by Paul's words in Romans 3, where he said, what about those who are faithless? Will that stop God's faithfulness? He says, certainly not. Certainly not. So this morning, that's all I really want to say. Let, let this whole shindig, whatever this is, try explaining it to someone, the Episco Disco, just try. <laughs> God has done something, and uh, he's done something, I can tell you with all honesty and candor, with very little. In fact, a lot, to the, a lot working against it internally. And that's where we are. The one who is faithful to the faithless, whose grace endures not 10 years or 10,000 years, but forever and ever. Amen.